working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is part 48. The text is Hebrews 11, 27 to 31. We got to 26 last week. We'll pick it up at 27. Go to 31. The title is Obedience When Faith Seems to Lack Evidence. Obedience When Faith Seems to Lack Evidence. So Hebrews eleven twenty-seven. By faith he left Egypt. This is Moses. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The phrase I want you to notice is that one, not, not being afraid of the anger of the king. And you'll, you'll see why in a minute. 28. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood... So that the destroyer, this will be explained, the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That phrase is interesting. Attempted to do the same. 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's let's pray. Oh, how we love your word. We, We really don't have anything else to talk about from this pulpit but your word. It is more precious than gold. It is the sword of the Spirit. And so, come, Lord Jesus, to the least knowledgeable who might be inclined to think he or she can't possibly grasp, and to the most knowledgeable who may be inclined to think he or she no longer needs. We all just come as children, it is a wonderful thing to come and just bow at the feet of Jesus. Let your word give life to our hearts, I pray. In your name, amen. These are our writer's last uh, words directly highlighting the faith of Moses. He has chosen, our writer of Hebrews, his faith uh, exemplars, He's chosen them very carefully. He's picking those he feels will have the uh, deepest impact on his audience. These persecuted Jewish believers, he tells us in this very letter in chapter 10, some of whom have lost their homes, some have been in prison, they've lost their friends, their family contacts, all because of their following of Christ. And they're being pressured to come back under the uh, Jewish old covenant And he wants his audience, our writer, as he writes this letter, he wants his audience to connect their faith with the roots of Abraham, he's talked about, Isaac, he's talked about, Jacob, Joseph, now Moses. So so his point, surely, to these persecuted Jewish believers is faith in Christ is not a departure from the faith of these great men of God. Faith in Christ is a fulfillment, a completion of all that these great people longed for and delighted in and looked forward to. 
what is a little bit different in today's text is the way our writer does move on to include some very ordinary, dare I say, even questionable people in his list of examples of faith. And I think our writer has a reason for doing this. I mean, after all, any one of his readers may very well be tempted to say, well, that's great, but sorry, I just don't rate with God the way Abraham did and Jacob did and Moses did. You might be thinking that this morning. Wonderful to tell me about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. I mean, I've seen their stories in Sunday school, Pastor Don. But uh, that's not me. I don't, I, don't, I don't qualify with those people. It's a kind of false humility, a kind of pretend humility that we have to root out of our, our hearts. The Spirit of God placed all of these examples in the Scriptures precisely because we need to follow them in the same kind of obedience, in the same kind of trust, and can do so. Point number one. Faith is fueled by the promise of God, made vivid by the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at that 27th verse. By faith, he is Moses, left Egypt, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, that part. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, Moses left Egypt twice, by the way. The first time Moses left, he ran after defending one of his own people in a bit of a brawl. And in response to his accuser, we're told that Moses left, and he left specifically because he was afraid. Look at it in Exodus 2, 14 and 15. This guy speaks to Moses and says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Look at, and Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. But when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian. So the first time Moses left Egypt, he left because he was afraid. The second time, we're specifically told in verse 27 that he left not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And we're meant to see a contrast, I think, in Moses' two departures from Egypt. So when Moses defends his Jewish brother and then he's exposed for his murder. He, he, he does defend. He does step in. He does kill that Egyptian. But it's, it's just a very short-lived, quick burst of human courage. It's, it's boldness. He has this emotional energy, but it's not the same as faith in a divine promise. And, and because Moses acted on impulse 
and he wasn't directed in the direction of God's promised plan for deliverance, Moses, he can't sustain himself in that kind of courage. He has no promise of God to back up his actions when he murders that Egyptian. He's out on a limb. He knows it. He's terrified of the consequences. He's taken things into his own hands. He's acted quickly, suddenly, boldly. But then he's a coward. And he runs. But when he leaves Egypt the second time, it specifically says that he was not, not being afraid of the anger of, of the king. He has no fear of Pharaoh because God has promised Moses that he's going to deliver Israel from Pharaoh's hand. You can see it. You can see it in uh, Exodus 11.1. 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Look at it. Afterward, here's what's coming, Moses. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Moses knows that. He knows that. He will let you go from here. There's the promise of God. That's why when Moses leaves, he has no fear of the king. As Moses leaves, he knows he's not coming back. He knows God has a final plan for Pharaoh. He also has the accumulated evidence of each of the previous plagues, one after another after another. Moses has watched as that string of plagues was unpacked under the hand of God. God has acted and acted and acted again, and then God promised he will let you go. That's why Moses isn't afraid. Moses pays attention to what he has seen. He pays attention, this time, to what God has promised. That's what our text means when it says he, he uh, endured as seeing him who is invisible, 1127. Certainly God's invisible, But our writer doesn't just mean that Moses pretended to see God. He means Moses really saw his invisible God taking visible, promise-keeping steps to fulfill his intention for Israel. So, so Moses' faith is a, is a thoughtful faith. It has a promise. It has a word from God. It's a remembering faith. He has seen what God has been doing with the plagues. It's, it's big picture faith. Okay, great. So, so far, so good. That's why Moses isn't afraid when he leaves the second time as opposed to being afraid when he left the first time. But the next step is, is the important step. What, what does this have to do with me? God made a promise of deliverance to Moses. Moses could actually see a a series of events fulfilling that promise. And the next verse in our text, what it does is, it takes all of this, all these threads, and applies them to my deliverance and the promise of God. Point number two. 
God plants visible events into our mental processing to assure our faith. It's in that 28th verse. By faith he, that's Moses, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, of course, this text is speaking of Moses' keeping of the very first Passover while Israel was still captive in Egypt. The blood spoken of is that blood of the Passover lamb. You remember the story. Smeared on the doorposts of the house after the lamb had been cooked and eaten. The Lord, the Lord was about to strike the firstborn in all of Egypt with death. Brian Zahn denies that, by the way, that it's God who does that. But if he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over. That's where it comes from. He would pass over that house. You can see some of the details if, if you want. It's in Exodus chapter 11, 4 and 5. So Moses said, and now he's quoting what he has received from the Lord. Thus says the Lord. About midnight, who's going to go out? Who's going out at midnight? I'll give you a clue. Thus says the Lord. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle striking. You can see it even more clearly if you'd like in Exodus chapter 12. Moses explains it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he, he, fixed. He passed over the houses. Who's the he? Give you another clue. He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, but when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses, sorry, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down. That's not hard to... That's pretty clear, is it not? The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of all the livestock. So here's the important point. This, the blood of the lamb had to be put on the doorposts that night, had to be there for the Lord to pass over, pass by that house. So, so the idea here is striking. There, there, there was no other privilege. That's why it said it didn't matter if it's in Pharaoh's house or the slave girl. There's no standing 
that makes you safe. No position in society. There's no other privilege, no other action that could provide safety from judgment. So, so only this shed blood provided safety. That's the point. Nothing else could be relied on for relief or protection. You couldn't just say, well, God's not like that. He's not going to come and do that. God's not a wrathful God. He doesn't judge. That won't save you. If this Passover blood was ignored, all hope was lost, even if you were an Israelite. And you didn't put this blood on the doorposts. Now remember where we are. The second point is, God puts visible events into our memories to assure our faith. That's where we are. Like Moses, under the first point, he can, he can see the plagues in succession. God speaks to Moses and says, there's another plague coming. Pharaoh will let you go. And you're not coming back. And so Moses can look at all of these plagues and can see what God has said. And that, that anchors Moses' faith. And that's why he's not afraid when he leaves. Now we apply it to us. And the the principle is the same. God plants visible events into our memories to assure our faith. And what we're looking at is the way Moses Moses celebrates the Passover. He, He invites people into acting out what's going to be happening with this blood on the doorpost. And they will be spared the coming judgment and wrath of God. But he doesn't just tell Moses... Don't worry, everything will be safe, everything will be fine for you. He involves Moses in something visible, something they can see, something they can participate in. They will celebrate it perpetually. And there, they will tie up their faith, they will anchor it there. Then we come to the New Testament. God is the same, he's holy, we sang it. Though the eye of sinful man, you all sang it, his glory may not see. Like, we, we don't qualify. We can't just go waltzing in and giving God a hug. We know our sin. We know our guilt. We all sit here this morning. We're all aware of the battles we constantly fight with our worst inclinations, right? Sometimes we win. Sometimes we don't. We know what our hearts are like even when we manage to keep them under control. We know when we're proud. We know when we're attention-seeking. We know when we're not teachable. We know when we're quick-tempered. And we know the holiness of God. We sing about it pretty well every Sunday. So, so here's the deal. What, what gives us confidence in divine grace? What makes us so sure of pardon? How can we know our faith in peace with God isn't just a hope? Wishful thinking. 
And, and, and significantly, the Apostle Paul, he answers those questions, those New Testament church questions, by turning our minds back to the faith of Moses and that shed blood. That visible assurance of God to those people for divine protection from fear and judgment. And here's, here's one place where you'll see it so clearly. It's not the only, but it ties in so nicely. Look what Paul says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So consider this. When God commanded Moses and all Israel to perpetually celebrate the Passover, he didn't just have Israel in mind. He had you in mind. So so we need this account to add memory to our faith. Christ shed blood is is pre-pictured in that Passover to give to give details and images for our faith. We're being we're being trained to expect deliverance from two things, from judgment and from death. So remember, there is both deliverance from judgment and deliverance from death through the Passover cross of Christ. Just as Moses understood the meaning of that first Passover by looking at the actual event, we find, we find the, the proof of our pardon, the meaning of it, by looking at the actual event of the cross, our Passover lamb and resurrection. We used to sing it. Nobody sings it much anymore. There to my heart was the blood applied. That's it. That's it. Our Passover lamb. So it's not a hope. It's not a wish. It's in history. It's happened. You can see it. I took too long on that. Sorry. Point number three. Biblical revelation and the unrealistic expectation that God will ultimately treat everyone alike. That's a very common view. And here's where I look at that in this text. It's in the 29th verse. So by faith, the people, this is Israel, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, and here's, here's the phrase, when they, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Let me ask a question you've maybe never considered before. We know that that verse right there, 29, we know the Israelites crossed the Red Sea by faith. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea. God, God told them. The text makes it very clear they crossed the Red Sea at the specific command of God to go forward. If you needed to see it, it's in Exodus 14, 15 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people, tell the people to go forward. 
Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. That's what our writer says when he says, by faith they went. But what, what made the Egyptians think they could do the same thing? What would make them think they were safe crossing the Red Sea just because Israel was safe crossing the Red Sea? Remember, these were people, the Egyptians, they weren't, they weren't new at this. I mean, these were people who had witnessed the judgment of God for their oppression of Israel, right? 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 Yeah, they'd seen it. There were families there who had lost their firstborn just before. And Moses had told Pharaoh. So they knew the meaning of the death of their firstborn. It wasn't just a bad coincidence that they all died. They knew why. They had witnessed the way Moses warned of the judgment of God on Egypt repeatedly. All of these judgments were predicted before they arrived so the people would know that they weren't just coincidental. So these Egyptians saw the judgment of God over and over again. They knew God was acting for the deliverance of his people and yet they can't, they can't seem to stop themselves. They, they somehow think they will experience the same holding back of the waters of the Red Sea. God will do it for them because he did it for Israel. They seem to bank on, listen, they seem to bank on the assumption that God wouldn't ultimately differentiate between people on his own terms. That he was somehow morally obliged, obligated by some standard existing outside of himself to accept everyone on their own terms rather than his terms. This is very common logic. God must be tolerant of everyone because, well, that's how democracy works, Pastor Don. And then the dead bodies all the Egyptians washing up on the shore. See, believing that you will fare well with God apart from his appointed means of redemption provides no safety whatsoever. Believing even believing sincerely that you will fare well with God apart from his appointed means of redemption will provide no safety whatsoever. It never has. It can't be explained away, this principle. Point number four. Faith follows the Lord in obedience even when that obedience seems powerless to solve present dilemmas. Look at at the 30th verse 
I gotta move. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. So they, they get these instructions. The instructions come from God. What could possibly be the point of walking around Jericho seven days? I mean, God could have caused the walls to crumble after walking around five days. What do you think? How many think, yes, God could have caused the walls to crumble after five days? All in favor? Any contrary? It's carried. God could have done it. Or three. Better yet, one. Why not, why not just march around the city, shout a shout of victory, and then go in and collect the spoils? We all know God was giving them the city anyway. Why, why make it take so long? And I can only think of one really good answer to that question. There's a reason for the seven-day march, and it's this. It's, this was by faith, right? By faith. Not just the hand of God, but by faith. So it points to Joshua and the Israelites. Their faith. Faith, if it is to be tested and proven genuine, faith always needs an opportunity to back out if it's going to be proven to be genuine and authentic. The seven days were needed not to make the walls fall, but to make Joshua's and Israel's faith to to reveal it as obedient and persistent, not quitting. Faith that isn't proven over time, faith that isn't given any opportunity to back out. Remember the, remember the audience to whom our writer of Hebrews is writing, these persecuted followers of Christ. Faith that isn't proven over time and that isn't given an opportunity to change its mind or to back out will never be proven to be loyal faith. Faith isn't precious until it's faith that will never back out, no matter how many opportunities arise. Faith that is precious is faith that will never back out, no matter how much time passes before the answer comes. Imagine. Imagine the possible thoughts. Fighting soldiers, Marines. Imagine the things that would dart through their minds as they marched around those walls for seven days. And how those thoughts might gather momentum and gather weight after day one, day two, day three. It's hot out. Day four, nothing's happening. Day five, were the people on the walls laughing at them? Day six. Imagine the thoughts that would gain weight 
as those thoughts had time to reappear over and over. How silly it all looked. Soldiers walking behind a bunch of priests, blowing horns. And the obvious point of application, I think, is, is this. When I have walls that need breaking down, when, when what seems to be stacking up against your life takes on a fortified appearance. You get what I'm talking about? When the things that seem to be stacking up against your life aren't just trivial matters, but have a fortified appearance. Many of the things God seems to call me to do day after day, week in, week out, many of the things he calls me to do can look incredibly unrelated to the situation that I want solved. God gives opportunity for obedience to wane and faith to fade. He's more interested in the loyalty of my faith than just a quick solution to my problem. There's something he's building in here. Five. Faith is willing to risk present security for promised future blessing, even when I can't see that blessing yet. 31. By faith, isn't it interesting, if I were writing this to a group of persecuted Christians and I was trying to find examples of faith, I may have mentioned Rahab. I probably wouldn't have used this whole title. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. So, She would not qualify for membership in Cedarview. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Isn't it interesting? This list, which, if you think back, this list that starts with Abel ends with a Gentile prostitute named Rahab. Abraham. Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab the prostitute. And you go, wait, 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 whoa, wait a minute. Why this? Well, God can work with any heart that takes his word and will seriously. There don't have to be any other pre-qualifying conditions. Here's what God said, and I'm responding to it. We all know the roots of her faith. You can read about it in the book of Joshua. She said to them, that's Rahab, I know that the Lord has given you the land. There, she knows it. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. 
all the inhabitants of the land melt before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man of you, for the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above, in the earth beneath. And so what you're seeing in these verses is an immoral Gentile woman who looks who just looks at what God is up to in these events. That's all the revelation she has. She doesn't have the four spiritual laws or steps to peace with God or Alpha. This is what she has. We've heard. This is God. I'm, that's the side I want to be on, she says. I get it. God is delivering you. God has given you victory. God part of the Red Sea. I get it. There is no other God. The idols of my people are nothing. Remember me when God gives you this city because he's surely going to. And we should be grateful, I think. We should be grateful. Our writer actually finishes off this rather austere list of the faithful with, with the beginning point, the very birth point of an immoral, pagan, prostitute's faith. And so what we're reminded of here, I think, is even great faith has to begin somewhere. (laughs) Nobody qualifies. Everybody has to start. Everybody has to come to the point where they say, oh, I see what God was doing in Jesus Christ. I see the shed blood in the way Paul calls it, the Passover, where God's judgment is borne by another, and I am spared judgment and given life. Oh, I I see what's happening here. I may be nothing but an immoral person. I've got a bad background. I don't have anything that makes me qualify. But I see what God is saying here. Yeah, I get it. Count me in. Any person at all can take the revelation of divine truth seriously. And this open sinner joins the glorious host with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. She refuses to perish with the disobedient. And nothing in her past disqualifies her from pressing into deliverance. And now you've all heard the same truth. The very same divine truth from the very same delivering God. I get it. Oh, that's what God's doing. I didn't realize it. And I don't qualify. But I want in. Let's pray.